I am hugely thankful for all of you, your presence here, and our work and worship before our God. I've been weighed down a lot this week about the violence that is occurring in the Middle East. Um, it's challenging as someone who's a Christian believer because we hear so much about Israel, 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 and the heritage of our faith. But we also know that Israel is about a spiritual heritage more than strictly an ethnic one. And so bearing grief for the Palestinian children, hospitals, bearing grief for the initial attacks by terrorists who wish to start acts of violence. These things are intention and are not easily one-sided, and that's hard. <laughs> I wish that I could give you easy answers. But bearing these things in mind, bearing the griefs of the world, I think we should go to our Lord. Gracious God, we honor you. We receive you in awe. And we ask that as we seek to know and to understand these things that are layered and complex and heart-wrenching, that you might clear for us a path, that we might speak to peace, that we might speak to justice, that we might desire a cessation of violence, that our own hearts might not be hardened against any, even those who are aggressors, God, but that we would entrust them to your judgment and your justice. Be with us as we seek to know from your scriptures today that we might understand how it is that we should work and live in the world. We thank you for this community and for those who are present. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, one interesting thing about having a long religious text, in our case, the Bible with 66 books, is that we tend to speak and preach and teach and learn from certain sections more often than we do others, right? Some of this is practical because certain portions of the Bible are more historically or theologically complicated, and we're a bit afraid to wade into that lest we make some terrible spiritual decisions. But some of the reason we don't study certain sections is because we don't like what's in it, or maybe uh, we don't know always what to make of the story. It doesn't always make sense to us, not just because of names of people and places, but the moral or the central message is sometimes obscured, or it's weird, or it doesn't make sense to us. And so we avoid it, or we skim through it, or sometimes we just hope our kids don't ask us about it, so we don't have to tell them a point of the story because we don't know what the point of the story is, right? Well, one story that we tend to avoid or sanitize is that of Rahab and the spies in, his, in Jericho. Her story is found in a book that is also something from which we don't do a lot of teaching. And so to get to her story in context is sometimes doubly challenging for us. And in a lot of ways, I think that's understandable. But today, we're going to wade in to visit or revisit her and her story and take an honest look. But to do that, we have to sort of take a step back and figure out the context in which we find this tale. So the first half of the book of Joshua 
focuses on the entrance of Israel into the land of Canaan, crossing the Jordan River, and two cities that they're seeking to conquer in this land. The first is Jericho, which is where we will find Rahab and the spies. And the second city is called Ai. These two cities serve as a promise and a warning to Israel on their entrance into the land as they are rebirthed as this new nation taking into Canaan. Israel is successful in conquering Jericho, spoiler alert, in part because of Rahab's kindness and because of their following of the rules that God had given them, the instructions that were given to them by God. The takeover of the second city doesn't go as well, however, because of Israelites who kept back things that were supposed to be dedicated to God, and death came because of it. There were Israelite soldiers who died on the battlefield, fighting a battle that should have been an easy route for them. And those who kept back the goods that were dedicated to God also eventually died. And so after returning these goods that were dedicated to God, the Israelites were eventually able to take the city of Ai. So the promise of these two stories is shown to us in the story of Jericho. If Israel does what is right, dedicates themselves to the work of God, follows the Lord's instructions, then things will proceed as they had hoped. And in fact, just after our story today, but before they actually get to the taking of Jericho, Joshua meets this mysterious army commander. Seems to be in the middle of the night, maybe. He might be wandering outside of the camp, or maybe Joshua's writing in his room, in his tent, and this man appears, but he's dressed in military garb. And Joshua, reasonably, I think, as the commander of Israel, asks him, are you for us, meaning the people of Israel, or are you for our enemies, meaning the people of Canaan? And the man says, neither side, but for the Lord alone. In this moment, for us as readers, it becomes clear to us, God is making a big statement. God is not on Israel's side, nor on the side of the Canaanites. God is instead turning the question around on Joshua and says, whose side are you on, dude? This is not about whether Joshua can convince God to be on their side, but God is asking, are you on my side or not? And so the people of Israel are given a choice in this moment, whether they know it or not, to accept this invitation to serve with God and for God or to serve and focus on their own desires, their own ego, or their own control. This might feel a little strange to you, because by the time we've gotten to Israel's story in Joshua, we've had a whole set of books that tell us that Israel is God's chosen people. It's a moniker that they are given, not just amongst themselves, but also affirmed by God. So why at this point in the story are they being asked by this messenger of God Whose side are you on? Seems like it's a little late in the game for that. But the loss at the Battle of Ai, which comes later, helps us see this more clearly. Israel is not going to enter the land without any problems. Because they have to continue to choose to be God's people. Over being focused on themselves. 
their status as Israelites does not keep them from being held to the same standards as everybody else. God is not giving them a pass on wrongdoing because of their formal existing relationship to God. Some people in their camp had desired what was for God. They had taken it, and the whole camp suffers because of it. The point of these two stories, a message that will continue in Israel's history, is this. Israel is not saved by their ethnic identity, not by their religious practice and the sacred tent in their space. They are not protected by their names or their high moral status. They are only saved and protected by their commitment to be on the side of God, by their continuing acceptance of God's invitation. God is asking them over and over and over again, whose side are you on? So now we turn to the story of Rahab. Our text is from Joshua 2, and in a lot of ways I'd like to read the whole chapter, but to spare you all, we will read verses 8 and 9, 12 through 14, and then 22 and 24. So we'll start at 8 and 9. Before they went to sleep, they being the spies who entered the land, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that dread of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. Verse 12, Now then, since I have dealt kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord that you, in turn, will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith, that you will spare my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, our lives for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, then we will deal kindly and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. 22, they departed and went into the hill country and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers had searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men came down again from the hill country. They crossed over, came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before us. So this story of Rahab, which we've only just gotten sections of right now, can be a very challenging one for us as modern uh, American, somewhat puritanical interpreters. The facts of the matter are thus. Rahab is a prostitute. She's a sex worker. And that often, in church folks, creates a strong reaction. We also notice in the story of Rahab that the men seem to go directly to her house when they enter the city. We sometimes create ideas in our own mind about how to read this story. We want Rahab to be Uh, exceptional in her own right, a secret spy master organizing the city somehow. Or we comfort ourselves that maybe someone had told the spies ahead of time that she was someone who would be easy to engage with and they sent them to her. We want to believe that maybe she was known in school as most likely to betray her city for another person's God. Maybe in our minds we turn her into this true believer, one who understood the truth of who God was 
having never met God. We might even say that she did this with reluctance, forced into her trade, and that's the most likely of our theories, but still remains outside of what the text tells us. From the earliest days, Christian writers have been trying to sanitize Rahab, her story and her identity, making her an innkeeper or something more palatable socially. But none of these ideas, either about Rahab or about the Israelite spies, are found in the text itself. And we have to be honest about that as we approach this story. But what we do find is a woman whose physical trade is a draw to the Israelite spies, and who is herself brilliant and cunning, creative, self-preservational, and the true hero of this tale. This is a time of great fear and uncertainty in the land, for Jericho, for Israel. But strangely, neither the spies nor the men of the king have any real clue what's going on. The only person in the story who knows what's happening is Rahab herself. And it's almost comedic, if we had the time to read the whole story, how things kind of unfold. It would make a really good movie, but most Christians wouldn't want to go see it. But we see in this chapter, the Israelite spies show up at Rahab's house. Then, sometime after, these soldiers of the king also show up at the house, knocking. And they say to Rahab, we've heard that you're keeping spies in your house. And she, innocent-eyed, sends them away with all of the authority as if she was their military commander and says, oh, they're not here. I heard they got out of the city. If you go quickly, you might catch them before the gates of the doors close. And so they rush away searching the surrounding area for several days for these men. And when they get out of town, she goes back upstairs to the roof where she'd been keeping the spies covered up with rushes laid out flat to disguise that they were there. She hatches a deal. She's the one holding all the power after all. And she says, I will help you get out to safety if you guarantee the safety of my family. And the men agree wisely. And she lets them out of her window because her house is built into the wall of the city. And like a reverse Rapunzel, she puts down a rope and they clamber down. I wonder if she tied it to some furniture and got some people to sit on the bed so it wasn't quite as lightweight. So she didn't have to lug them down herself. And once they're gone, she ties a scarlet cord out of her window. Maybe out of all of her windows to signify that this house was set aside. That way, when the armies of God returned, it would not be mistaken for somebody else. Rahab is not an Israelite. She's a Canaanite woman. She lives in one of the major cities in Canaan. She's not socially powerful, serving in a role in society that was often shamed by the same people who kept it in business. Rahab is not a believer in the one God of Israel and never claims to be such in this story. But this non-Israelite, unimpressive, easy-to-forget pagan woman sees the power of God in the land and says, I want to be on that side, whatever it is, whatever it means. She joins her lot 
and accepts the invitation of God, an invitation she did not even know in some ways she was accepting. She participates in God's work in the world. Just as Israel is learning that their identity, their religion, and their believed moral superiority would not save them, so also Rahab learns that her identity, her religion, and her perceived moral inferiority does not keep her from salvation. It is only by God's invitation, accepted and acted upon, that any of them got to participate in God's work. Most of us probably feel a little more like one of these groups than the other. Maybe you feel a greater connection to the spies who enter the land, even if you think you maybe wouldn't make quite the same decisions that they do. Maybe your family heritage is important to your faith and your faith practice. And maybe the culture that you're in believes itself to be a God-fearing culture. You know what God wants. You've heard it all your life. And so you kind of think maybe you're set, right? You're more like God's people than you are like those people. But I hope that as you hear this story, that you can begin to reflect on what's faulty with that kind of thinking. This story is a lesson for the spies to encourage them to think outside of the box in terms of who and what and how and where God works in the world. The lesson for those of us who are more like the spies is to be reminded of our own frailty and to remember that God's invitation is open. Anyone can receive it. Anyone can say yes. Our status and our station, our history and our background does not make us better than other people, does not automatically graft us into the work of God. Instead, those things, our context and our heritage, should push us more to make the effort to say yes. Sometimes when something feels natural or inborn to us because of context or background, it can be easy to kind of phone it in, do a half job. But this is an invitation for us to say yes to God again and again, and to be open to readjusting our vision for how God's world works. It's possible that you're listening to this and you feel a lot closer to the life of Rahab than you do to the spies. You always seem to find yourself on the outside of society, of your family, of your culture, of your workplace. You know shame, even if it is a different kind than maybe she's experiencing. And you know how often people dismiss you or use you or ignore you because they don't think that you have any expectations for your life. Maybe you feel like you don't understand your faith or even what it means for you to believe. And sometimes you're not even sure if you really believe it at all. So whether you share one point of contact with Rahab or a hundred points of contact with Rahab, this story is here to tell you a good and beautiful truth. Those who have considered you to be not enough, those who have not welcomed you, those who have rejected you, those who see you as morally wrong, 
they do not get to offer you the invitation. You can't even offer it to yourself. Only God can offer it. And no one gets to take it out of his hand to prevent you from saying yes to it. No previous context, no current situation, no future problems are ever going to stop you from having the choice to say yes to God's invitation. When the story of Jericho comes to an end, Rahab joins with the people of Israel. She and all of her family, a large group, and she marries into the people of Israel. And from that, she bears a son. And from this son comes the line of David, in which 16 kings are born for this nation, a nation she was not naturally a part of. And of those 16 comes one young, shamed, unwed mother, much like Rahab's life. And from that mother, one Jesus Christ. No identifier can take your name from God's invitation. So at the end of this story, at the end of the book of Joshua, at the end of our stories, God alone invites us. But to be a part of that, to be a part of God's people, we have to say yes. And we have to continue to say yes with our choices, with our lives, with our actions. We get the chance to live this out, to reorient ourselves to the work of God in the world. Our identities, our religious communities matter, but they matter because God has made them matter, not because of something inherent to it. The story is not supposed to cause you anxiety about your status with God because our actions are not measured on a cosmic scale, weighed out at the end of all things. But God is the only one who can offer it to us, and that doesn't change based on what we have or have not done. Our concern, what we ought to draw from this story, is that we have to continue to say yes. Not once, not a hundred times, not a thousand times, but every hour of every day to continue to say yes. And any time we have said no does not stop us from being able to say yes again. This story should free us because we can recognize that God is not a God of exclusion or favoritism based on heritage or background or intelligence or religion or daily choices or what we like about ourselves. The invitation stands for each of us just the same. You've been listening to me, Pastor Kana Moore, at Hayes Christian Church. Hayes Christian Church is a non-denominational fellowship in Hayes, Kansas. We are supported by the generosity of our members, attenders, and friends. The financial support we raise goes to projects which further spread the gospel to those who do not yet know Jesus, to those local, national, and international missions, and they help keep these broadcasts free. If you would like to share a monetary gift with us, please visit our website at hayeschristianchurch.org and click on the donate button. Or you may mail your gift to P.O. Box 1111, Hayes, Kansas, 67601. If you have any questions, comments, or would like more information, we would love to hear from you. Simply go to our website and click on the Contact Us form. Thank you for your generosity, and may God bless you as you seek to follow him.